good morning today. I am so glad you're here. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Rob Jacobson, and I, again, want to welcome you to this Easter day. When I think about Easter, I have to remember one of the things that my family still does, my wife's family actually still does, even though the grandchildren are growing. In fact, some of them are even driving. But we still do the beloved Easter egg hunt. How many of you do an Easter egg hunt or have done an Easter egg hunt before? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Nana and Papa, they take the colorful little plastic eggs with treasure inside and lay them all out in the yard, and then kids run after them or even, you, you still do it, yeah? I see it, right? I know. You, you probably are going to get a lot of Easter eggs. But uh, I know that Nana and Papa are getting better at hiding them because when we cleaned out our gardens this fall, we still found a couple <laughs> eggs. The treasure was still there, ironically. But the Easter egg hunt reminds me that we are all hunting for something. Some of us uh, are searching the corners or closets of our lives for things that have meaning, maybe a lost memory. Maybe it's something that will distract us. It's like that shiny object. Or something that, that we really, really, really want. Could just be a fleeting moment. Another, some of us really want those truth. We want answers to those deep, dark, well, not dark, but deep and challenging questions. Questions of, of meaning, of purpose, and of justice. And today at Easter, I think we can see that treasure in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a treasure that's both reasonable and beautiful. Now, some of you might think that it's a little bit cheesy to consider the treasure of the resurrection in Jesus. But if you just consider with me for a minute, when I talk to people of faith, or when I talk to people about faith, I usually get kind of the extremes, like the polarization in culture is also the polarization that happens in faith conversations. So one hand, I have this conversation with people that is something along the lines of they see faith as this unhelpful, even archaic or old superstitious you know, thought that no educated, intelligent, modern person could actually believe, so I've got to start there, or they see it as, you know, they categorize faith in Jesus and his resurrection as just one of many things that could be helpful or, or fun to believe in because there is no objective truth, and, and the tests of that are, you know, relevancy, sincerity, or satisfaction, and as long as it's one of those three and you believe it, you can go ahead and do that. It doesn't really matter if it actually happened. So as I consider these two things, I have to just say, well, on the one hand, if there's no objective truth and passion and sincerity are the only, or satisfaction are the only qualifiers, then we need to look at history. Throughout history, there have been people, nations, tribes, ethnic groups that have said, our race, our tribe, our people, they're superior to everyone else. In fact, we should rule the world and we should just exterminate those that are different. You can see that throughout history. I would say that is not okay, that their passion doesn't make them right. Deep down, we know that some things are wrong, even if others say they're right, and some things are right, even when others say the opposite. And so passion or sincerity has to not be the only qualifiers. Maybe there's some measure of truth, some reasonableness, if you will, but what about that archaic or unhelpful thought? So I was considering this, and I came across uh, the founder of Harvard Law School, Simon Greenleaf. 
He's considered one of the greatest legal minds in history. He wrote a book on the laws of evidence in 1852. And if you're like, oh my gosh, that's old. It's still referenced today. He was adamantly skeptical of Christianity. Thought there's no way educated, intelligent human beings could actually believe this magic, this faith. And so some of his Christian law students said, Dr. Greenleaf, why don't you use your laws of evidence and test the witnesses and the evidence of the New Testament? And so Dr. Greenleaf went on a hunt, searching through the New Testament to find, actually, and disprove the theory of evolution. Some of the, some of the evidence that he looked at is actually found in the scripture that Patty's going to read now. Easter. <clears throat> he is risen. I'm going to be reading uh, the gospel, which is from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've taken him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still... The cloth uh, was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, 
do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Thank you, Patty. Pray with me. God, would you open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to what you have to say to us through your word today. May we be changed as we consider it, as we leave today. Amen. Well, we're looking at these ideas that the resurrection is both beautiful and reasonable. And as we look at this story, John, the gospel writer, tells us that the first eyewitness to the resurrection is Mary Magdalene. Okay, so the first witness is a woman. Now, all historians and Bible scholars will tell you that in those patriarchal cultures, women could not testify in Jewish or Roman court. Their testimony was considered unreliable. Now, I don't know who said that to a woman, but they did. So it was inadmissible as evidence. That was kind of funny, but maybe not. My point being, if you were going to make up a story about Jesus rising from the dead that you wanted others to believe that wasn't true, then you wouldn't have a woman really in the account in general, but you would not have her first in the tomb. And yet, in John's account, and in Mark's, and in Luke's, and in Matthew's, all the gospel writers have women as the first eyewitnesses. So why would men who wrote these accounts include the women, include them as first, if they wanted them to be reliable and worth more? Not to be overly simplistic, I think the only historical plausible answer is that that actually happened that way. Women were the first at the tomb. So Mary goes to the tomb first, the story says, right before dawn. Remember, the day before this was Sabbath, so they couldn't work, they couldn't walk, they couldn't go anywhere. But now it's a new week, it's a new day. And in fact, in Jewish culture, it was called the eighth day. It was considered new creation. Creation was a process that continued on and on. And so Mary's not thinking about new creation, though. Mary is sad. She's lost something. She might be just going there to weep. She might be going to mourn. She might be going to put spices on the body to keep it from smelling as it decays. She's going to just simply be there. Maybe you've been in a place where you've lost something, and somebody asks you how you are, and you're like, there's no way I can answer that. But there's just somewhere I need to be or something I need to do. I just need to sit. I need to think about it. And that's where Mary is. Although, when she sees the tomb, she sees this opening. And I have to imagine she's thinking, seriously, haven't you people done enough? Was it the Romans? Was it the soldiers? Was it the Jewish leaders? Did thieves come and steal the body? Like, what, what, who disturbed the tomb? So she has to find out. She doesn't want to do it alone in the not quite lightness of the day. So she runs back to find Peter. Peter, the one who denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, the one who deserted Jesus at the cross, like all the others except for John. I'm guessing he was hiding. She finds him, and then she finds John, and they run to the tomb. And it says that Peter out, or John outruns Peter. I don't know why the writer would include that. It seems like an extra detail. 
But in my mind, it adds some authenticity to the account. If we were looking at a reasonable explanation for faith in Jesus and his resurrection. And then they go in to the tomb. John stops and looks. Peter runs in and looks. And the, the word the writer's using is a word like pondering, like investigating, wondering about. So maybe you walked in as an you know, if you're of a certain age, you were given one, but we didn't try to discriminate. It looks like a sheet like this. It's got a hidden picture or a word find just because, oh man, we didn't have cell phones and smartphones when I had to go on road trips, so I had highlights for children. <laughs> I know, totally the same. This app was called Hidden Pictures, and my sister and I would play it over and over. And supposedly there's an ice cream cone and a shovel. I did find the bugle, which is kind of like a trumpet, and a horseshoe. Maybe you found it too. You did? Uh, you already found it, see? Yeah, that's, but what you guys are doing right now is exactly what I think Peter and John were doing at the tomb. They're investigating the evidence. They don't see Jesus' body, but they do see the grave clothes. It says, that the grave clothes were laid out in a certain way. As they're, as they're looking in the tomb, I have to believe they're wondering, okay, if Jesus really didn't die, if he was faking it, then if he would have come back to life, he surely would have ripped those grave clothes off. They would have been scattered all around. And if his friends had come in and stolen the body, taken it away because they didn't want someone to destroy it, then they certainly would have uncovered him because an uncovered body would have been considered dishonorable at that time. But if thieves would have come, what kind of a criminal would take the body and then take the time to unwrap it carefully and then put it in a certain order? Because as the text says it, it's as if the clothes have been unwrapped carefully and then laid out to create this effect. As if the body was picked up and not, not taken out, but like dissolved out. Almost like a deflated air mattress or an empty balloon. And then the headcloth is lying separate, folded in its place. Now, for those of you, again, who like reasonable evidence, theologian N.T. Wright noted that archaeologists have found at least one first century tomb. It's just south of where Jesus' tomb must have been. And the grave clothes looked something like this, very similar to this, where the body was the grave clothes were left intact and all that was left in them was some of the bone fragments because the body had dissolved. And they estimate the time of burial before the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 70 AD when Jerusalem was wiped out and destroyed, then the body was never moved. Again, for some of us, that's extra evidence, but I think it adds credibility to the story. And John says he looked at the evidence, he saw, and he believed. What is it that he believed? Did he believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Or did he believe, like Mary's conclusion, that because the body was stolen, or because the body wasn't there, it must have been stolen? We can't know for sure. But I think there's something to the fact that it says, because he did not yet know from Scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. I kind of think that Jesus actually did believe because of the evidence that he rose from the dead. I mean, that's what Dr. Greenlee figured out as he examined the evidence and the testimony of the witnesses from a legal standpoint. 
he found it not only to be reasonable, but to actually be irrefutable. He wrote, the resurrection of Jesus Christ had to be, or has to be, one of the best established facts of history. And he became an intelligent, educated, fully devoted follower of Jesus. See, authentic Christianity doesn't say, believe it because it's relevant or exciting or satisfying. Authentic Christianity says, believe it because it's true. And if you're someone who makes decisions with your head, I hope you find that compelling. Now, if you're like, oh, I want to know more, we have a book out at a resource table called The Case for Christ, and it's just yours. We'd love to give it to you as a gift to consider the evidence. But for those of you who make decisions with your heart, you might be left a little unresolved. I mean, Peter and John fade from the story, and Mary's still there. And what I love especially about the Gospel of John, the writer of John, is he's trying to show you that Jesus loves both types of people. People who think and make decisions with their head and people who make decisions with their heart. And if you're coming here at Easter with your heart a little broken, like someone or something is missing, then I think Mary is your person. She went to the tomb to face her suffering and her grief. Because real Easter doesn't force us to fake a happy face. It doesn't dismiss or suppress our pain or minimize our loss. It allows us to come face to face with the reality that death and suffering are painful and frustrating and difficult and God doesn't ignore it. That's what I think he's doing when he asks about it. Those angels, they're, again, John gives us more information about what they look like and where they were, but the angels ask, woman, why are you crying? Now, Jesus repeats the same question. And if you're someone who's like, the God of the Old Testament is mean and judgmental, I would just like to have you consider that maybe you haven't read the whole Old Testament. Because there are many times in Scripture that God comes to people who are mistaken or misguided or just defiant. And he asks them gentle, probing questions. Consider Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God in this perfect garden. He asks, where are you? How did you come to know your shame? To the rebellious prophet Jonah, he asks, is it right for you to be angry? And even to the defeated, exhausted prophet Elijah, God asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? It's not an accusation. It's an invitation. I think that's what's happening when the angels and Jesus both ask the same question. Woman, why are you crying? And the reason I think it's an invitation is because counselors realize that it's rarely, if, you, if you've been to a counselor, and I recommend them, it's rarely helpful to have someone tell you what to do or tell you how to think. If you're not sure, just try it sometime. But it is helpful to ask questions because questions help people see where they are. And they, um, 
to recognize their errors and wisdom to make a change. So it's an invitation to be seen, to be heard, and to know what's in your heart. And sometimes the most compassionate thing you can say to someone who's crying, if you want to know what's in their heart, is why are you crying? And that's not about being sensitive. If you think that's just about being sensitive, then you're, I would say it's, you're wrong. It's not. It's about being courageous and strong. Because it takes courage to ask that question, and it takes strength to sit with someone in tears. It's not just reasonable, it's also beautiful that the God of the universe can come back and not just give us evidence, but touch our hearts. And if you're someone who needs their heart touched today, then that's what Jesus is doing. If you've lost something or someone in the last year and and no other Christian has asked you about it, I'm sorry. But Jesus does, and he continues to do it, and I believe he will do it again. He asks then, not just why are you crying, but who are you looking for? It's penetrating just a little deeper into her heart, and Mary responds with what she's looking for. I don't know if you caught it. Oh, you must be the gardener. Just tell me where the body is. I'll go find it. I'll take it with. That'll be okay. That'll be good enough. For Mary, though, it's not. And on one hand, you know, thinking that Jesus is the gardener, she really missed it. But on the other hand, I think she's more right than she realizes. Consider that this is supposed to be the resurrected son of God. And where do they find him? In a garden. And why would she call him a gardener? Must he have been doing some gardener-like things? Maybe he's pulling thorns or thistles or weeds. Working in that garden as the light breaks through the darkness. Maybe you, someone who's read Genesis, you're catching this. The, the first place that the God of the universe appears is in a garden, at work, bringing goodness and order out of chaotic darkness. I think he's trying to say both things there. He's trying to show us, you know, it's in the highlights for children. It's that one comparing the differences one. Maybe you've seen this before. Oh, spot the differences. There's 13. This drives me crazy. Because I'll get to 10 inevitably, and then I can't find the last three. And and I just think it's funny that it's like, oh, it's Jesus appearing to someone. And I'm like, oh, I can't find it. I'm completely missing the point. Or, or that's why, because we need help to see it. Maybe you need help seeing it today, too. I mean, really, seeing the beauty. If Mary could not see Jesus right in front of her, is it possible that you or I or anyone else in this room might not see Jesus working in disguise right in front of us? And we just need some help seeing him. We need help to see that it's not only reasonable, but it's also beautiful, especially at Easter. Jesus pursues people and pursues Mary even when they can't see. This is the good news. This is the story. Mary doesn't connect all the pieces. She can't see past her tears, her loss, and her distress. And Jesus calls her name. I think it's beautiful because it's personal. She responds, and when she does, Jesus gives her this message. Go tell the disciples, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Instead, go to my brothers 
and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And it's, you might be like, why can't she touch him? Because, you know, a little bit later, he'll tell Thomas, touch my hand, touch my side. But Mary, no, she doesn't get to do that. But I think it's more about Jesus saying, everything's going to be okay. But it's also going to be totally different. Because I'm no longer going to physically be here, and then you're going to feel this loss when I physically go. Now, when I ascend to the Father, I will be with him, and yet I'll send my spirit so he'll be with you and all of you so that you'll always know my peace and my power and my presence. Mary, that's for you. And I think God would say, it's for all of us. All of us. Every one of us. No matter who we are and no matter what we've done. There's reasonable evidence, but there's also this beautiful evidence of the invitation. This personal invitation. He's saying, not just being God, not looking for students or servants or friends. Jesus used all those terms, but now he's calling them brothers and I think sisters. He's saying, it's not just my God, it's also your God, that you can know him with this intimacy with this love. Not just acknowledge that I exist, but know my love. The Savior of the world appeared to Mary first. He specifically chose a woman, not a man. Mary had seven demons cast out of her, so we might call her a reformed mental patient, not a pillar of the community. Mary was on the support team. She wasn't one of the all-stars. And she was the first Christian. Christian is just someone who believes who Jesus said he was and believes that Jesus did what he said he did. And right now, she's the only one who fits that category. So if you're here and you believe that Jesus is this great moral teacher that can teach us nice things, but not the Savior, that's not believing who Jesus says he is. And if you're someone who thinks that Jesus just died to forgive people in general, but not just for you, then you're not letting him do what he said he did. He is calling your name and my name, and that is beautiful. And over the next six weeks, we're going to look at this brand new, beautiful relationship that we can have with Jesus. And I would love to invite you back to that. And I hope you'll return to do that. Because it is both reasonable and beautiful. But just consider by choosing Mary what God is saying. To you, to me, to all of us. It's not about what, who you are. It's not about what you've done. It's not based on talent or appearance or affluence as much as we might like those things. It's not based on moral attainment or effort or performance. It's just based on an invitation. Whether you're weak or strong, smart or simple, male or female, it's for all of us. Jesus isn't just our teacher now, he's our savior. And he saves us by his work, not our work. And that is beautiful news.
Would you just consider that news as we respond with prayer and song? Jesus, you have been raised. And you came when dark was turning to light. When the brightness was opening our eyes and the light was chasing away the shadows. To say that, that resurrection is about telling us that death is not the end, that suffering is not the rest of the story, that there is life from death, that there is resurrection after pain and loss, and that new things are always possible. And I pray, God, that we would consider what it means to be brand new in you, what it means to be resurrected in you, what it means that our efforts won't get us to a place with you, God. But the fact that Jesus died and, separate, and, and tore away that separation that caused us to, be, to live far from you, God, the fact that he built this bridge that makes a way for us to not only have relationship with you, but to have all of our past mistakes, our present worry, and our future frustrations, God, to have that just be covered by your love, by your grace, and by your work. You are alive and on the throne. Let us put ourselves under your reign and your rule.